Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. How can technology be used as a lever to improve people's lives at scale? On this episode of Future of Tech, we speak to Christina Wallander, Chief Experience Officer of Human Interest, a company focused on increasing financial wellness through helping small and medium businesses offer quality 401k plans to their employees. She dives into the retirement crisis happening in the United States and explains that a vast majority of people will be unable to afford the life that they envision after work. She also discusses how psychological biases can hinder good long-term investing decisions. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. I'm very happy to have with me today, Christina Wallander. Welcome, Christina. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. So, Christina, I was looking into your uh, bio. Um, I've seen you've studied psychology, and I was wondering, how did it happen that uh, from psychology you are finding yourself in high tech? Wow, yeah, quite the journey. Well, I guess... You know, from maybe we start first with the anchor point of psychology. You know, I think for for myself, you know, I, I double majored in psychology and economics. And what I found fascinating was this burgeoning field of behavioral economics and, you know, thinking about some of the systematic biases people have that hold them back from having the best outcomes in their life. And with the right nudges, we can help people live better lives, healthier, wealthier, happier lives. And I thought that was fascinating. And I guess zooming out a little bit, I mean, I've always been wired as a person to make things better for people. That is, I find tremendous meaning and purpose in that and found you know, a lot of ways you know, to, to help others toward better outcomes. And I found that technology was a tremendous lever for being able to improve, you know, people's outcomes and, you know, do that at scale. Nice. So you, you started studying economics and, and psychology. At what point you, you said, okay, I want to go and jump into the uh, high-tech industry. Was it uh, during the studies, right after? or? Yeah, you know, it wasn't uh, immediately thereafter, I suppose. So coming you know, straight out of college, I spent some time in the banking world. I worked for JPMorgan Chase 
post-merger. So I spent most of my time there. So this was right after Chase Manhattan acquired JP Morgan. And I spent just under four years there working on the post-merger integration of the two banks. Maybe I what kind of stuck with me as part of that experience was the opportunity that we had to help people with their long-term financial wellness. I would say I wasn't so much thinking through the angle of technology until I spent some time through business school studies. I was in the Bay Area, went to Stanford. And you know there I met a ton of entrepreneurial-minded people who were really finding opportunities to solve problems in the world and using technology to do that. So the kind of snapping together of technology as a way to help people with their outcomes. Really, I would say that you know moment of connection happened during business school. Out of business school, I spent six years at Amazon, which was where things really came to life for me. The culture of customer obsession at that company resonated very strongly with me, and the way that you know Amazon used both you know metrics to identify opportunities and you know technology to deliver results at scale was, you know, really formative. And I've taken a lot of what I've learned there and brought it to other early stage companies since then. I guess when I joined Amazon, you know, the motto is every day is day one, but, you know, it was uh, more than a decade old at that time. And since then I've been focused on earlier stage companies that are many years before where Amazon was when I spent time there. Nice. And today you're working where? I work uh, at a company called Human Interest. We are a 401k provider for small and medium-sized businesses, and essentially we help them uh, affordably offer retirement benefits to their employees and make it easy for their employees to save for their future. Great. So let's take it step by step because some of our audience are international and not sure they understand half of what you said. So let's start <laughs> from what does 401k says? Ah, 401k is a tax-advantaged way to save for your retirement. Um, it is through an, an employer-sponsored plan. So basically, as an employee, if your employer offers a 401k, essentially you have an easy way to save for your retirement. It has a number of advantages for you. Um, you know, First and foremost, the fact that savings is automatic. So money is deducted from your paycheck and automatically invested in your retirement portfolio. And you don't even have to think about it. That just happens in the background. I mentioned tax advantages. You know, there are a number of different types of 401ks, uh, but a common choice is, you know, essentially to defer tax on the money that you're investing until your retirement. So there's some advantages there depending on your income and, you know, tax situation. And you can in invest more in a tax advantaged way in a 401k than you have in some of the other vehicles available in the US for saving for retirement, such as an IRA. 401k existed before human interest uh, was founded. What was the need that you've tried to, uh, to solve? Yeah, well, maybe we'll start with just the need the 401k solves and then you know, where human interest comes in. The macro problem is you know, nearly 80% of Americans are not saving enough for their future. They are not on a path to afford the life that they envision after work. Social security was intended to be America's retirement saving safety net but it was never intended to provide more than the bare minimum of income. And it is also projected to be insolvent in just a little more than a decade. So we cannot rely on social security for our retirement security. So there you've got, you've got the gap. And essentially, Americans need to be finding ways to put money away for their future, for life after work. And the employer-sponsored 401k is 
really the, the best way to do that. It has a number of advantages like I, I described. And you know, it's really effective in getting employees to save. And that's a hard problem. The problem of long-term savings is one of the biggest challenges that we have as humans. A lot of the you know, heuristics and biases that we use for day-to-day decision-making, they work against the problem of long-term savings. You know? So if you're familiar with some of these, these are the things I studied in college. You, know, you think about the present bias, like we overly focus on what we see today in the present and we have a hard time envisioning our lives decades into the future. And so what that means is it's hard to incur a cost today in service of our future selves. Social norms, we conform to what we see in society. We see people spending, we don't see their savings. We're information averse. We don't like too much cognitive load. So you just have a lot of things working against the problem of long-term savings. And the employer-sponsored 401k is kind of this beautiful vehicle that uses some of our biases to our advantage in that if you're automatically enrolled in the plan, which you know most employers are making that choice, um, it's something that you know there's coming uh, federally mandated legislation that may require that. But if you're automatically enrolled in the plan, one of our biases is the default bias because it's a form of social norms. Basically, we're likely to accept the default. So by default, we will help people with this hard problem of putting money away for the long term. That sounds awesome, right? Well, you know, where does human interest come in? The challenge human interest is here to solve is that nearly half of all working Americans didn't have access to a 401k through their work because they worked for a business that didn't offer one. So this is a choice that employers make. And it's one, there's a lot of advantages, you know, for employers. It's a tool for attracting and retaining talent and having lasting impact on the lives of your employees. But, you know, the challenges for smaller employers, it was too complex and too expensive. And so human interest came to solve that problem by offering a affordable and, you know, easy to use low administrative burden 401k that makes it easy for small businesses to offer this to their employees. So your target customers are not the end customer, rather the SMBs? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we sell to the SMBs, uh, but the company exists to, you know, help the employees of those businesses. Our vision statement is to solve America's retirement savings crisis so everyone can achieve financial independence. And really, the employer-sponsored 401k was a strategic tool because it's an efficient way to get access to individuals to help them with long-term savings. And it's also a very powerful way. It's more powerful than the other methods of saving for the long-term, you know, which just require a lot of cognitive investment. And you think of your IRA, it's like, oh, you got to remember to contribute every year. How What's the limit? What do I invest in? The 401k takes all of that off of your shoulders. Help me out here. I understand the concept of 401k now that you've explained it. And I understand the need because, you know, half of the population doesn't have it or the SMBs didn't uh, deploy it. Okay. But how exactly or what exactly are you doing in this process and how technology is assisting in, in the solution? Yeah. Well, so you think about, you know, human interest and the ways in which it's disruptive. It's disruptive in, you know, the... You know, I know, um, you know, many early stage companies have disruptive innovations. This is disruptive in like the Clayton Christensen sense of, you know, disruption theory, which is that we are taking a market of non-users of a product and helping them become users by reducing barriers. And the barriers there were affordability and, you know, access, ease of use. And so you have here, we've had employers that were previously not offering this benefit that are now able to offer it. And similarly, much of our technology is focused on making it easy for employees to save and get started. So we have employees that may not have 
saved at all or as much, you know, with another 401k product. And we're helping them adopt and, you know, invest in their future. And from a technology standpoint, you know, there's really sort of two dimensions of our technology, the way we think about it. You've got sort of the back-end technology and the front-end technology. So on the back-end, we're focused on building world-class financial infrastructure. So this is our trading, money movement, and record-keeping technology. And it's core to the company strategy because you know, it essentially offers us a structural advantage that helps us keep the price of a 401k low for those that we serve. So that's critical. And we've made some choices that are uncommon in the 401k space. It's kind of shop talk uh, if you're not as familiar with legacy 401k providers. But you know, for instance, we brought um, the concept of record keeping in-house. Most other 401k platforms are outsourcing record keeping. We built our own record keeping platform. And you know, essentially, it allows us to own the technology end to end and just unlock our ability to both innovate for customers as well as process things more efficiently, kind of with streamlined operations. So that's the back end. You know, on the front end, we're focused on using, you know, sort of the theories of behavioral science in the design of our product to help people with their long-term financial health. You think about the front end, you know, experience that, you know, users, both employers and employees see is basically designed with, with nudges that help you down the path to a better future. But a lot of other technology products are high engagement products. Um, the 401k is not one of those. It's not like you're coming in every day. And for, for most folks, you know, tuning in and tweaking your 401k is actually disadvantageous to your, your long-term outcomes with your savings. We have a, an investment philosophy of you know, investing for the long-term, you know, diversification, low-cost index funds, and we rebalance our participant portfolios on a quarterly basis. So you truly can set it and forget it. But the thing you are doing in the product is you're making some very important choices. And this is true for both the employer and the employee. It's basically, you can think about it as a choice environment, essentially. The employer is choosing, do I offer a plan? They make decisions around eligibility rules. Are employees eligible day one of employment? Or is there, let's say, a one-year service requirement? Do I automatically enroll employees or do I ask them to opt in? Do I offer a company match? So do I match employee contributions or not? And if so, you know, there are a number of different ways to do that. As an employee, similarly, do I participate? How much do I contribute? What do I invest in? It's, it's choices. And the choices that people make have a pivotal impact on the value that they get out of the 401k. So we spend a lot of time focusing on sort of the choice guidance that's built into the product. You mentioned simplicity being a key factor. Can you elaborate on, on what does it mean? Yeah, simplicity. I mean, you know, so much of this, when we think about reducing barriers and taking non-users of a product and helping them adopt, a lot of it is just making it easy. Again, that's true for both the employer and the employee, specifically for the employee. You know, we think about for so many of the participants in a 401k, you know, this is not only your first retirement account, but it's your first investment account. So the idea, you know, if you think about legacy providers, you know, when you get dumped onto that page with like 40 different funds you have to choose from, if you're not a seasoned investor, that's daunting. And in fact, you know, the early research that our founders did, one of the things they looked at was for employees that have access to a 401k, what is the participation rate? What percent of eligible employees are actually participating in the plan? And what they found is, you know, particularly for lower income cohorts, the participation was in like the 30% range. And when they did research on why, it was that page, effectively. It was that folks just didn't know a blocker. And, you know, it was too much cognitive load. They didn't know what to choose. And so they stopped. 
you know, in essence, among the things that we've built into the product is built in investment guidance. And essentially, you don't land on that. If you want to go to that page, there's an affordance for those. There is a segment of, you know, employees who are very financially savvy and would like to pick their own funds. And if you'd like to do that, there is a way to go down that path. But, you know, for the vast majority, the 98% is that we basically recommend a model portfolio that is diversified and, you know, based on what we know about the employee and they don't have to pick a fund, essentially. If they're automatically enrolled, they'll be invested into that model portfolio. And, you know, if they opt in, it's what we propose, you know, and again, they can adjust it, but we get them started so they don't have to stare at that blank screen, essentially. Your role is the chief experience officer. So what, what does it mean that you are experiencing uh, firsthand the, the product or the first title I've heard about, which is equivalent to CEO, because it's also CEO, but just an experience instead of executive. Huh? Sometimes in short form, it's XO, you know, like C, you know, CXO. But yes, regardless, let me define what that means, you know, for us at Human Interest. Essentially, so I lead the experiences organization. And functionally, that stands marketing, design, and customer care. And so when we think about the collective charter of our organization, it's, it's to build the best known and most loved financial wellness brand, you know, bigger than just retirement. This is helping people with long-term financial wellness. But our brand is our customer experience. And so our teams essentially own key touch points through the end-to-end journey. From the very first moment that you learn a 401k is within reach for your business, or as an employee, you learn that you're eligible to participate in your employer's plan, all the way through to the experience you have in the product. So our design user research teams are part of our org, all the way through to the experience you'd have with our customer care if you had a question or needed help. So all of those teams come together. And what we want is to create an experience that's you know, end-to-end and holistic and you know, something that, that our company is known for. How do you find it, uh, you know, your background in psychology assisting you to do this work? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, when I thought through, you know, I guess my early psychology training, it was paired with the concepts of economics. And so, so much of, I am very passionate about the behavioral design elements uh, of our product and thinking about how, you know, to help people down the path to a better future. And there are, you know, again, it's using some of the, the systematic biases we have to our advantage. So we use that in the design of the product, as well as even in how we communicate around the 401k. So you think of, you know, one of the challenges we have to solve is let's say we have employees that are not participating in the plan. How do we help them come to understand the benefits of participating? There are, um, you know, some of the learnings we have from behavioral science, for instance, let's say that you have a company match that you're eligible for, but you're not taking full advantage of it. Well, there's the concept of loss aversion and the endowment effect. So it's your money and you are missing out, you know, on essentially free money from your employer. And so we bring some of those principles into the communications that we have with essentially those we serve, both employers and employees, but specifically the employees, you know, to help them take full advantage of the power of the benefit that they have. Are there elements of AI or machine learning in your solution? Well, you know, it's, it's less, less about that. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, we're not using more, you know, sophisticated data science methods to help us better understand, you know, which populations we can help the most. But, you know, at the core, when we think about our product offering, like that's not the differentiator for us. Allow me to take a detour because I also saw that you are 
quite passionate about uh, Team Planet. <laughs> For a second, share with us the idea behind it and, and what is it all about? Yeah, so Team Planet essentially is a, a company I co-founded and the idea was um, to help you know solve the problem of energy access in rural parts of the world. Um, we were focused first in Africa, specifically in Malawi. And you know the origin story is we spent some time there volunteering there for six months of the year for many years and we went to see the work they were doing and what really struck us was um, how much of the community was living without power, which I know, you know, so many parts of the world, you know, have that problem. We happen to have, you know, some small solar products with us because we've been traveling quite a bit and, you know, just keeping our devices charged with um, some conversations with, you know, just local members of the community, you know, we shared, here's a, a product that could, you know, potentially improve your life. You know, is this something you would use? And that was kind of like just the spark of inspiration. So Team Planet started, you know, first focusing on, you know, Pico Solar, essentially powering an individual's energy needs for a day, primarily phones, as well as light. And it was kind of an ecosystem of products that were focused on that. Very nice. And, and how do you find it as, you know, are, are you passionate about it? How much of your, you know, quote unquote, uh, personal time you're investing into it? At this stage, certainly not as much as, you know, during that period, I had taken a one-year sabbatical. Um, so this was after leaving Amazon. You know, some of it was uh, exploring the world, parts of the world I hadn't seen. And the other was, you know, figuring out what are some of the ways that I might contribute to making a better world. So that was part of that exploration. I think, uh, you know, since then, I've found my job at Human Interest right now, for instance, which is really where I spend the vast majority of my time and energy. I mean, it's not a job for me. It's a way to advance the change I want to bring to the world. And what I landed on, I think even before the first sabbatical, but I really crystallized then, is that my personal mission is to create a more empowered world. I've worked toward that end through many different career platforms, as well as volunteerism. But you know, few things are more empowering than being able to afford the life you envision in your retirement. And I get to work toward that every day. I mean, it's one of the biggest problems we have in the country, the retirement savings crisis. I mean, we are just not on a track for people to have enough. Years of retirement can last a quarter of your life because of some of these biases we have. And I think that's really what was imprinted on me earlier on in my educational journey, learning about you know, so many of the mental models we have around decision-making. It's just, it's, it's a really hard problem. And you know, I think with companies like Human Interest, that we can make a real dent in that. You left Amazon, you went to Africa for a year. What made you come, uh, come back? So I said I was going to take a year after Amazon. People kept calling it my year off, but I did not feel off. I mean, we were completely on. So we rebranded it to our year on. <laughs> and having sort of a start and end point, you know, there's also a lot of research behind the power of ends and the power of midpoints. So I think, you know, had I left that a more undefined period of time, I'm not sure I would have accomplished as much. What I liked about a year was it's enough. You know, some people give themselves a month, like a month. <laughs> By the time you decide what you want to do with it, like it's over. I felt it was a, a large enough container to do something meaningful and really explore, but finite enough that I could use the power of the finitude uh, to help me make better decisions. So I knew I would come back. And just from my time 
as a business school student at Stanford, you know, the energy of the Bay Area, the optimism, the sense of we can change the world. There was so much I liked about it. And I knew in my mind that I would come back at some point. So I guess the stars aligned. And so we planted ourselves in the Bay Area and then kind of the journey, I guess, from there has been really in, you know, earlier stage companies, they've all been, you know, sort of roughly at the Series C stage when I've joined. So they're at that point where they're predictably generating revenue and they're at that point where they're ready to scale. Now you are at a company that uh, is ready to scale and, and what motivates you to make a change? Are you like in a constant journey that you are always waiting for the next uh, C round and then the next C round or, or are you looking into something uh, different? It, it just feels there's so much left ahead. Human interest is certainly we're growing and scaling very quickly. I mean, we're adding 10x as many plans per month, you know, this year as we were uh, in 2020 when I joined. There's so much runway ahead. I mean, I am squarely focused on that. I do think that as a result of, you know, some of the research I've done with our customers, I've, you know, sort of crystallized. I had this general direction of helping to facilitate this concept of empowerment and long-term financial wellness, you know, being a part of that. I do think longer term, I see myself focusing specifically on improving life for older adults. You can't cram for your retirement. It's like nearly impossible. You really do need to start early and you can start small, but you have to start soon. So through human interest, I'm able to sort of get ahead of that, you know, and help people think about this life that they'll set up for themselves long-term. But I do see in a future chapter of my life, focusing more specifically on what life is like during that period. You've mentioned scaling. So can you share some of your, let's say, company throughout the history you've, you've been to several that scales? What are some of the challenges that you can share with our audience? Yeah, gosh, uh, scaling is, I think, for every company. I mean, every, certainly every company I've been at, you know, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. And a big part of it, I mean, there's, it's, it's at so many levels. It's at the systems level. You know, it's ensuring that your systems are actually, you know, when you begin uh, the journey as a company, you know, you're in that early market validation phase. Like, you don't really know. I mean, of course, you have, you have your vision, but you're, you're not really sure exactly which direction it's going to go. There's often a lot of pivoting. And so you don't over-engineer things for the 100,000x use case. But when you're at this point now, you find that, you know, some of the technology choices you made, which were fine for the problems of last year, actually, you know, five years from now, will need to be refactored and reconsidered. I think that's true at the systems level. I think it's true in terms of your talent, you know, the talent that you need to get to a place where, you know, you're ready to scale. You bring in a lot of folks that are just wearing many hats, a lot of generalist skill sets. And as you're ready to scale, you need to get narrower and deeper and more specialized. So there's often, you know, just a change in, call it the hiring profile that you have as a company. Then you think about, you know, all of this in the context of a broader, you know, macro environment, which is ever changing. It's a lot to think through. And, you know, it's certainly, I think as a leader, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges, you know, that, that we have is, you know, it's that 30,000 foot view and, you know, thinking long-term while also one of the, the things I, I think, you know, Amazon really excels at is building a culture around operational excellence. So going all the way down into, you know, sort of the finest grain, like 30,000 feet and then like five feet, you know, the tools that teams have and how they're making decisions and, you know, ensuring that the foundation is set for that scale. Assume someone is listening to us and is also debating, you just got like four offers from uh, companies, different companies, the same stage. They're all, they, they all want to, you know, to become at a certain point, I don't know, a unicorn or, um, I don't know, a billion dollar company. 
What will be some of the filtering mechanism that you can assist him with looking into different companies before taking a, a decision? For many folks, their work is really like a primary platform for learning and development, as well as, you know, their impact. Stepping back, I mean, I guess among the first questions, you know, I'd ask is what do you want to learn? On what dimensions do you hope to learn and grow? Not just in this next chapter, although that's obviously very important, but, you know, call it, I like to think about, you know, one to two steps beyond that. What are some of the things you see yourself doing in the future? And then work backwards from that, you know, and the skills you know, and competencies, more importantly, that you need to develop, you know, the best talent among the, you know, sort of, I guess, frames we use around hiring is we're looking for folks that are, that are intrinsically motivated, that are seeking personal mastery. They want to be best in the world at what they do. I think for talent to have your own learning roadmap and to, to have a concrete view ex ante before you join, like what specifically is it that I'm learning here? then you think about impact. Like in what ways do you want to impact the company, your team, the, the world more broadly? When you think about sort of a competitive advantage, I suppose, of, of human interest, just the problem we are solving is one of you know, the biggest challenges we have in American society today, this retirement savings crisis. This really is a way to work directly toward that. So for people who are motivated in that way, there are very few opportunities that might compare but yeah, those are things, you know, another uh, just, you know, final frame is you think about, well, if you're there to make an impact and contribute and also learn, it's finding that right balance of learning while also bringing what you already know. So I often think about the factors you want to change versus keep constant. So for instance, some folks will move, stay within an industry, but move roles or maybe stay within their functional area, but change industries and so on. It gets a balance of learning and impact. What, what role do you see? For company values in in uh, in the future of any company that you worked in, is it important? Not at all. Just you know, a plaque on the wall or something meaningful. Yeah, I mean, values are really their decision making framework, really, and they drive you know day to day behavior. I've been part of company. I think Amazon is a great example of a, a you know it was a very formative place for me. You know, I learned a lot there about building a culture around customer obsession and balancing sort of innovation and execution. But so much of that was driven, you know, through their, their values and the way they were used day to day, used in hiring, promotions, you know, exits were all based on values. And it was a language like the lingua franca used anyone who spent, you know, time at Amazon and they would be able to read <laughs> off to you like verbatim all of the company values, including the two that were recently added. So I've been at places where that's really powerful. What I think about them though, is it's really fundamentally less about the values of the company and more about the values of the leaders and the entire team you bring into the company. At the end of the day, what a company accomplishes is, you know, a function of its talent and, you know, the culture is its people. So I think having company values can be used to help sort of attract and select folks that have common belief system and sort of way of getting work done. That's really where the power lives, though. It's, it's in the day to day and how people are making decisions and interacting with each other to accomplish big things. With your permission, I will ask you maybe a few more personal questions. Going back into your history and background, can you share some moment in your professional life which was a low light that made you consider, you know, maybe to to change a decision of yours or or to make you know um, and, and and to dwell a bit more about some acts that you've done and, and then to do something. Very few lives are a straight line. You you're often you've got you know the peaks and valleys you know in the story of your life and. 
what you've kind of, you know, seen and done on the personal front, what precipitated my sabbatical, my first sabbatical following Amazon was, you know, the death of my mom. You know, I still call her my best friend. I think of her every day, I used to speak with her every day. And it just, I can't possibly convey the degree to which that changed my life, you know, her passing. And what I learned from it is that you can't defer your life goals to the future. It, it helped kind of frame my, my perception of time and the amount of time that I had, because there were so many things my mom had hoped for in her life that, you know, she wasn't able to experience uh, as a result of her untimely passing. And so that was sort of punctuated by the fact that I lost my dad a year later. And it just really hit home for me, this idea that, you know, our, our time is finite. And if I defer all of my life goals to the future, there's a chance that I don't get to have the, the full portfolio of things that I would like to have. And so the first sabbatical became essentially a life model. And my wife and I now have committed to uh, taking one year out every five to seven years to pursue non-work goals. And the first was focused on exploration. You know, the more recent one right before human interest was focused on in investing in my local community. And so that, I think that just fundamental reshaping of my perception of time is really was formative. On the work front, the company that I was at right before my second sabbatical was called Realty Shares. I honestly can envision that I would still be there had it not been for you know, we were forced to exit the company. Uh, we had, we were pursuing our, our series D, we had a term sheet, we thought we had it all lined up and there was, you know, sort of a disconnect between investors and we, we weren't able to surmount it. And, you know, the, the clock ran out on our cash. So we were forced to exit the company. And, you know, I think for myself, I previously thought, wow, by the time you're at, you know, series D stage of a company, you're sort of beyond that point where, you know, things are, I would nothing certain, right? It never occurred to me that this would be the outcome. We spent a lot of time within the company, you know, sort of pointing fingers, let's say at investors that couldn't get aligned on terms. And that was the, the proximate cause. The root cause was that our business economics, they just weren't good enough. And what it meant was that, you know, we weren't as attractive of an investment to a broader array of investors. And if you track back to the why behind that, we deployed our technology toward the wrong problem as a company. And we figured that out. That's the hard part. I still live with this. We knew what we had to go do, but we just ran out of the capital to go do it. So that company was meant to sort of democratize access to real estate investing and you know help because crowdfunding for real estate, essentially. Anyway, I could go down the path of what I wish we had done. But the point is, what I really took away from that was just, you know, the importance of your business fundamentals and, you know, getting really crisp on that and really investing in that early on, even if you're well capitalized. And I will say that that's something, you know, certainly that, you know, I look for, and it's one of the compelling aspects of human interest. You know, I think the way that we've deployed our technology, you know, to the right problem that gives us the structural advantage that we have in operating our business efficiently. You know, there's kind of, you know, some unique dynamics of the business. One of the elements of it is the fact that have kind of this natural net revenue expansion. So based on, you know, we earn uh, SaaS revenue from employers, we earn assets under management revenue, basically, you know, we earn investment advisory fee from the employees in the plan for the built-in investment guidance that we deliver. Both of those sources grow naturally over time. So as businesses grow in size, we earn more SaaS revenue from them. And as their employees contribute to the plan, 
we have more opportunities to serve them. And so you've got, you know, just some of these natural dynamics in our revenue model that help to sort of stabilize our business. And you think about the macro environment that we're in today, where there's a lot of uncertainty, but we are in an advantaged position. So you think about hiring, for instance, like we're, just, we're growing the company very rapidly, even in the current macro climate. Thanks for sharing. This was very insightful and, and, uh, and, and also um, emotional. So thank you for, uh, for that. Now tell me, if you need to share some lesson learned on a positive note or, or to do things for two founders or three founders or, you know, a bunch of uh, people that wants to, to be the next big thing, what, what will you tell them? Like, uh, make sure that what? Make sure you're investing in your retirement. <laughs> uh, so just have that going in the background because it's awesome to have big ideas with the, you know, the right energy and, you know, vision and talent. Anything is possible. Also, things are not certain. I mean, if COVID taught us anything, things can change on a dime. So be thinking about that in the background. And that's something you can offer to your employees, even as a small business, because companies like human interest exist. But back to, you know, really fulfilling the vision that a founder might have. This is often said, but it's, it's very hard to do. Really keeping your customer at the center of your business. There are just so many pressures. The challenge inherent in raising capital for the company and acquiring talent and dealing with competitive dynamics, it's really easy to take your eye off the customer. I feel very fortunate that I spent time earlier in my career at Amazon because they just did such a remarkable job of building kind of a culture around that. And I saw what that looked like. Being in other places, I see how hard it is. And I do think that if as a founder, that is something that is critically important to you, speaking to customers directly, there, you can look at all the metrics you want. There's tremendous power in anecdotes that you will not find in your data. Having Creating time for that to connect directly with customers and learn about what's on their mind and some of the challenges that they're facing, that will serve you in just informing your intuition. And it's also just cascades down into the broader organization. Kind of dramatically changed the way we work. Will people ever come back to be, you know, 100% of the time in the office? Yeah, you know, I'm very interested to see how all of this plays out. I spent a lot of time thinking about built environments at Realty Shares and commercial real estate office, you know, was at the time an attractive investment area. This was a couple couple years ago. And I'm I'm not so so sure about the exact role that offices will play. I know it's not zero. I know that creating conversation spaces, having an opportunity for people to come together, you know, advance uh, certain projects like that, it's, it's very obvious. You know, the contrast of COVID, contrasts really help you evaluate, see things in a different light. So you just went from all being in the office to not. And certainly there's some benefits that I think a lot of, um, you know, people and families are, are seeing with the flexibility that's opened up through remote work. And yet there's something that's lost by not being together. And so my hope is that we find ways to come together for the type of work that is best suited for that, you know, brainstorming, collaboration, you know, there are, you know, frankly, even just team building. And we allow the types of work that are actually done better asynchronously. That's, you know, just another, it's something we focus on a lot at Human Interest you know, sort of the documentation-based uh, culture and having, you know, the ability for, you don't have to all be in the same room at the same time in order to communicate information that we can work together on sort of our own time and find other ways 
one thing we are doing just, you know, at human interest, which I think, you know, is really helpful for companies that are distributed is we've created hubs in the kind of core markets where we have critical mass of employees. So that's all across the country. And so they've created opportunities for social time and gathering. And the cool thing about that, it brings together folks that aren't typically in the same functional area. You get a cross section, which you weren't always getting in the office. You know, in the office, you sit with your team and there's a proximity bias, right? But here with the hubs, you're actually bringing folks from like revenue, customer success, technology all together in one place. And some of the ideas that are created as a result of that are really powerful. Yeah, you're right. And uh, it is uh, an interesting dilemma. Uh, where we're going to land eventually? Definitely not probably the extremes, but the question is where, where exactly? Probably depend on the, each company. People were or started getting used to a different uh, environment working from home. And yet in all the companies at your background, and, and you've mentioned Amazon and a few other uh, C-stage companies, in all of them, you experienced growth and scale and probably needed to work around the clock. So how do you balance between life and work in, in, in a company that is constantly growing and, and is looking for the next peak and uh, always needs you for additional two hours a day? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain type of person that regardless of whether the company needed you or not, you're just thinking about it, you know, 24-7. And, you know, certainly opening up remote work and being able to work wherever you are, there's can be hard to shut off. That right equation is is different for everyone. And I think, you know, it's really, um, that's part of what makes it challenging, but it's actually, there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity in figuring out your life design and people approach it in different ways. You know, I mean, for myself personally, that's, that's part of this concept of sabbaticals every five to seven years. It's that when I am focused on my career, it's like 110%. It's putting my full shoulder into the impact that I can have there, knowing that some of the things maybe that I don't have as much time or space for. I can defer that to the next sabbatical and then put my full shoulder into that. I'm not like an, an 80% person. So it can be hard to skim a little bit of time for those other things. I prefer to chunk, um, but that's, that's a life design that works well for me. And I know may not work as well, you know, certainly for people with families or who have other needs in their life. So it's, it's one of the challenges though, because it would be easy to just sort of let other people's needs and schedules kind of dictate how you spend your time. And it does require a tremendous amount of discipline and conviction to be able to carve out, well, what is really right for me. Kind of a last question. Um, again, a personal one. Are you happy? Oh, yeah. Am I happy? Very much. Very much so. Yes. Which is great. Which is great. I think it's, um, it's a good place to say thank you very much. Thank you for your time and, and sharing your career and, and also the values and, and the story personal story and the company story. And it was a pleasure. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I just really appreciate, you know, the thoughtfulness of your questions and the opportunity to be here with you. Great, Christina. And, and hopefully we'll meet face to face soon. I would love that. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn.